This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to put a hold on money spent to the WHO. We're going to put a very powerful hold on it, and we're going to see. That was U.S. President Donald Trump. Some pretty strong words about the future of funding for the World Health Organization. Now, yesterday, the state of New York reported its highest one-day death toll from COVID-19. To talk more about what is going on south of us, we're joined by Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what is happening here with the WHO? This seems like a new target now for the president. It is a new target for the president. I mean, you know, it past times in the administration, uh, Donald Trump has gone after anything based, uh, you know, or linked to the United Nations. Uh, but this time around, uh, what is uh, assumed here is that the president is trying to deflect blame and responsibility from his administration's own shortcomings and is now trying to blame that on the World Health Organization by saying that they missed the call, that they weren't, uh, they didn't act quick enough at the beginning of this and that they were too quote unquote China centric. It is worth noting that the World Health Organization uh, did sound an alarm in the earliest days of this virus being discovered, uh, you know, in early January when it was just in Hubei province in China. And they declared uh, this to be a public health emergency far before and far uh, earlier than the United States did. Right. OK, but is he actually going to follow through on this or was this something to just kind of get some attention? Well, I mean, look, the president has made threats against United Nations agencies in the past. Uh, you know, whether or not he follows through with it, you know, we'll have to wait and see. The U.S., you know, makes up about 10 percent of the WHO's budget. So it's a good chunk of money that the president is threatening here. Uh, I can imagine that there would be, uh, you know, oversight issues and, and issues from lawmakers within D.C. if the president decided to go forward with this, as well as pushback from ally nations around the world. Uh, this simply could have been a way for the president to put the blame on somebody else as his own numbers are struggling uh, as he goes through this pandemic. Okay. Uh, there's lots of political news out of the U.S. as well. I mean, what was those pictures, Reggie, out of the state of Wisconsin yesterday were just wild. Like, why were they making people vote? Yeah, I mean, look, this is where politics plays into a pandemic. Wisconsin has a Democratic governor, but its state house and its state Senate are controlled by Republicans and its uh, Supreme Court leans conservative. So earlier on, when the Democratic governor tried to say, look, we need to push this down the line, we can't have these lines happening in the middle of a pandemic, he was over ruled essentially by the majority in uh, on the Republican side. And then when he decided to go and sign an executive order to say, I am not going to let people stand outside. Remember, that state's under a stay at home rule right now. It went to the state Supreme Court and he was then overturned because it leans conservative. So this was politics playing here. Uh, the president came out yesterday to say that it's because he was, uh, you know, throwing his weight behind one of the candidates in the Republican race that the Democratic governor tried to shut it down, which is simply not true. It just went against every guideline that the president, the CDC, 
CDC and health officials have been putting out there for weeks to not be in close quarters with other people. And yet people, you know, did get there. They did stand in line. They kept their distance as much as they could. People wearing masks and things. But you've got to think that the, um, the number of people voting will be way down significantly lower than what they would have expected, particularly because uh, there were people that wanted to be able to vote by mail and there just weren't enough ballots and they didn't have enough time to get them put in the mail because the Supreme Court said, well, look, if you're going to put a mail uh, ballot in, it's got to be postmarked by today. But people simply weren't able to go and get those ballots because there were a reduced number of polling stations because fewer people showed up to work at these polling stations. You know, this is putting it put a burden on the shoulders of the voters to go out and, you know, carry out their duties, uh, you know, despite the fact that they were putting their own lives at risk because yeah. the Republican Party in the state simply didn't want to budge. And didn't they also reduce the number of voting stations, like the number of voting areas? And that's simply why we had lineups that were five and six hours long, oh, because boy. there just weren't enough workers to come in because they said that they didn't want to put their lives at risk or they had already fallen ill. Oh, boy. OK. And what is the update from New York State? So New York State yesterday posted its highest death toll in a 24-hour period on the plus side of 700. There are now more than 5,400 deaths in the state. The better side of the news is that hospitalizations, ICU visits, and intubations are down. So Governor Cuomo is saying that this could potentially be uh, you know, the apex that they've been talking about. It could also be that they have plateaued now, which means that, well, hospital visits may drop. The death toll may stay the same now for a couple of days. Uh, we've all been talking about the top of the curve and the peak. Yeah. What is unknown now is how long you stay at the top of the curve in your peak, You know, whether it's a quick drop down or whether you stay there for days on end and watch your death toll just continue to kind of hover around you know a higher number than you'd actually like it to be right lots of attention is paid to new york but is the virus not spreading uh faster and with a higher kind of rate in places like louisiana right now Louisiana, it is the same with Michigan. Michigan's on the approach to a thousand deaths. That's the third highest death uh, toll in America. They're on the approach to likely today will uh, go over 20,000 confirmed cases. This virus is still running rampant. There's a report out from the University of Texas today that shows that, uh, you know, underreported cases in states around the U.S. is a fact of uh, a lack of testing. So mm. this virus could actually start to run more rampant as the weeks go by simply because we don't know where additional hotspots are going to be because uh, testing is not being carried out. So while you're watching Michigan and Louisiana and Pennsylvania and Florida see their numbers skyrocket, these numbers could only get right. bigger as the weeks go by. All right, Reggie, thanks for the update. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, the Chinese city where COVID-19 first emerged, the city of Wuhan, has allowed people to leave the area for the first time since it went into lockdown in late January. All right, that is a report detailing what is going on right now in that part of China. So that lockdown that is at the heart of the original outbreak of COVID-19 is now beginning to ease as the reported number of new infections in Wuhan continues to decline. So to talk more about what is happening in China right now, how are people responding to being allowed to go outside again, being allowed to get on a plane or on a train? So we're joined now by Global Mail Beijing correspondent Nathan Vanderclip. Good morning, Nathan. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. So tell me, you are in Beijing. What kind of changes have you noticed in the last couple of days? Oh, in Beijing itself, uh, I mean, to be honest, things feel like in some ways they're getting stricter. Um, but uh, Beijing's a bit of a special case. There's, there's a real desire to sort of build Beijing in a bit of a fortress Beijing to protect it against any possibility of the virus coming in um, through 
arriving either from uh, overseas or indeed from other parts of, of China. But Beijing's a bit of a special case in that sense. So this is a bit of an experiment then by lifting a little bit of the lockdown, having people leave and seeing what happens. Right. And, and they've, they've tried to uh, sort of put a bunch of guardrails around what's taking place. People can't leave, in particular for places like Beijing. There's no ability to leave Wuhan for Beijing without getting um, a, a proper sort of nucleic acid test in Wuhan first. And then those who arrive in Beijing must then get another nucleic acid test on arrival and then spend 14 days in quarantine, home quarantine, largely in Beijing once they get here. So they're, they're, not, they're not taking many chances when it comes to uh, Beijing itself and, and, and put, trying to put up lots and lots of obstacles. I mean, you can't even, if you, you want to travel from Wuhan to Beijing right now to buy a train ticket, you can't go through the normal booking sites to do it. You actually have to first go through a Beijing health screening app and only once you're cleared on that app do you gain the ability to actually buy a train ticket to come to Beijing for oh. Wuhan right now. So how have they done this? Because that's a discussion, of course, that we're having right now in North America and other countries about, well, when we eventually lift this thing, how does that happen? How have they done it there? Well, through through tremendous amounts of monitoring in many ways. Um, and so in Beijing, uh, you know, you can't, there's not much you can do right now without either having your temperature checked or having your personal information taken down uh, or having to scan a code on your cell phone, which then sort of checks with uh, the database that verifies where you've been over the last 14 days or all three. I mean, you can't, you can't walk into many restaurants without doing that. You can't walk into shopping malls without doing that. You can't even, can't even pump gas without getting your temperature checked. Everywhere you go, people are, people have these little handheld, little infrared thermometers at the checking temperatures and writing down personal information and that sort of thing. And it's, it's meant to be a way of uh, sort of keeping up the guard against people who might uh, be running a fever, but also in terms of keeping a very detailed record of where people have been so that if, for example, you become a, a case, uh, they, they, the argument is that they, there's a better way to track down other people who you've been around. And that's for people inside Beijing. For people arriving in Beijing, it's quite strict. Um, uh, right now, I mean, in China, no, no foreigners are allowed to come into China, but even sort of Chinese people coming to China must go into, um, go into quarantine for 14 days, and, and, and in many cases, a centralized quarantine, where uh, you're put into a hotel, adults are kept separately, and even children who are considered adults in China, which is 15 and above, are kept separately. So I have friends who came back who are husband and wife and a 17-year-old daughter, and they were put in three separate hotel rooms for 14 days until uh, the quarantine period expired, and then they were allowed to go home. Really? Uh, We talk about whether or not this is going to permanently change our habits in any way. Has there been any difference there? I noticed right away people flocked back to all those tourist sites, and they were packed again. Yeah, I mean, you, you certainly saw that at Huanchan this weekend, but um, and, and I think my suspicion is you probably won't see that again for a while, that this was something that attracted a tremendous amount of attention, not just around the world, but also among officials in China. And so, for example, in, in Beijing itself, the zoo here is open. There, there are numbers of people there, but it's, I think they're, they're trying to control how many people come in. You've had the same thing at, at one of the Great Wall sites in Beijing that's opened. I haven't been there, but I understand that they've been trying to sort of pare down the number of people that are going in. Some of the tourist sites are now only allowing you to go in if you buy tickets 
a day in advance um, so that they have a bit better ability to sort of uh, tamp down the number of people who come in. But but all of these things are are you know it's set set against uh, a population that has now spent months in in, in varying forms of homestay or quarantine or other sort of forms of lockdown. And, and there's, there's, there's clearly an appetite uh, to, to get back outside. You talked about all the monitoring. I mean, that's a lot, right, of, of oversight and monitoring that they're doing of people. But do you think it, it, people go along with it, though, because they're also just so glad to be allowed to move a little bit again? Well, yes and no. In fact, I had an interesting conversation with somebody in Wuhan today uh, and, and talking about this. And in Wuhan, it's much more strict right now. I mean, people are allowed to get out of their house, their homes if they're going to work, but you need an official uh, form of documentation from your employer uh, before, you, before you're allowed to go out for that. And for others who are going out to do running around or other errands, it's only one person from a household at a time for, for a maximum of two hours. You have to do this QR code scanning thing to get out of your residential compound. You have to scan a code to get into a car, like an like Uber equivalent or a taxi um, and all the rest. And you're only allowed for two hours at a time. So one of the people I spoke with today said, you know, it's just, you know, it just feels like every step I take is being monitored and it just makes me want to stay home, which frankly may actually be part of the point. Um, but this is, this is one of the things, I mean, you know, uh, China already possesses a, the, the world's most capable surveillance state, uh, and it's now both being augmented and, and, and put towards the purposes of, of public health prevention. All right, Nathan, thank you for updating us. You're very welcome. That is Nathan Vanderclip. Fascinating uh, talk about what is going on in Wuhan right now as the lockdown starts to get lifted. He is the Globe and Mail Beijing correspondent. This is Mornings with Simi. 618 on this Wednesday morning. I got it wrong at the beginning of the show, but then that's the way it goes these days, right? It's hard to tell what day of the week it is. Uh, right now, following a story actually from Air Canada, they've just announced, they put out a press release that they intend to use the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy Benefit. This is the subsidy that the federal government announced saying that they would allow businesses to hire people back if they had already laid them off. But essentially, the federal government will help support those employees, pay up to 75% of their wages if companies keep them on the books. So Air Canada has just announced that they intend to do this. They're going to rehire 16,000 members of their workforce that they had furloughed, and uh, they will do so with the help of the wage subsidies. So there'll be more to come on that. I'm sure a lot of people are going to break that down, but we'll be hearing more about it. In the meantime, though, let's talk about the impact that this whole lockdown situation is having on nature, essentially. How are marine mammals doing with the reduction, especially in boat traffic out there? Uh, let's talk to Nikki Reitmeyer about this. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, I mean, even if you don't live particularly close to the water, I mean, you can just look out your own window from your home and see that there's fewer cars on the road. And, you know, it's not hard to then imagine that there'd also be fewer boats out there in our oceans, especially here locally in, in Metro Vancouver, where, you know, we are surrounded by so much water. So with that reduction in boat traffic, are we seeing an improvement for the condition of marine life here locally? Well, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into this. So I spoke to Valeria Vergara. She's a marine mammal research scientist with OceanWise Conservation Association. And she actually specializes in beluga whales and how noise affects their ability to communicate. So, Simi, I'm sure that you already know this about how important it is for whales and dolphins oh, yeah. to rely 
on their communications, right? They communicate through sound. So we've heard a lot in the past about the problems that a lot of marine traffic can cause. And, and she sort of expanded on why that, why they communicate with sound. It actually is for a, a very practical reason. So sound translates very well in water, which is a reason why many species of whales and dolphins use sound so effectively to communicate with one another. But on the same token, noise pollution, noise from propeller cavitation, for instance, transmits equally well. And it can mask the sounds that these uh, marine mammals produce and it can interfere with their ability to communicate with one another, to navigate, to find food and things like that. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, and I found it fascinating in our conversation because I, I, I kind of said to her, you know, have we seen anything like this before? And she said, well, actually, we have. So back in September of 2001, 9-11, uh, after the 9-11 attacks, planes were grounded, which we're all very familiar with. But non-essential boat traffic was also halted along a lot of shipping routes in North America. And researchers took advantage of this silence. It provided them a chance to look at stress levels in whales with some data that they'd been collecting before and after this boat traffic was ceased. A group of researchers led by New England Aquarium conducted a really beautiful and planned experiment. They paired data on acoustic pollution before and after 9-11 with data from stress hormones uh, collected from from scat, from poop, (laughs) of North Atlantic right whales. And they found that the whales were far less stressed than normal during the times of reduced uh, noise levels. So basically, this confirmed what we had known for a very long time, that underwater noise is a problem for for cetaceans. So fast forward to 2020, and I think we are in the midst of another unplanned experiment. Now, Nikki, that is so fascinating because it just goes to show you that when something like this happens, it actually makes a lot of researchers and scientists go out there and say, we have to grab this opportunity. It's very true, and that's exactly what local researchers are doing uh, right now, uh, including, you know, Vergara, who actually, she studies mostly beluga whales in the St. Lawrence, but OceanWise is doing research around how quiet marine traffic is affecting local local marine life here, Uh, and before that research is released, I think we can probably make some assumptions as to what we could possibly see, a hypothesis about what we might possibly see. So, you know, I asked her, I said, this has got to mean good news for our local whale population and marine life population, no matter where in the world, but imagine here in BC, right? I think it's too early to tell. I would love to see that being a result, but Certainly, it has to be good news for marine life uh, locally. The fact that BC ferries, for instance, reduce their service across many of the routes, they effectively cut, I think, their sailings in half. And they, they are one of the single biggest sources of noise in our waters. This has to have significant effects on whale habitat. Um, whale watching companies also suspended all operations until July 1st at the earliest. This, I think this has to represent good news for for marine life, especially killer whales. I guess the question that Nikki is like, well, what are we going to do with that information? Well, see, this is the other side yeah. of it. I mean, when life returns back to normal again, do we just say, well, you know, we know by, you know, as she sort of referenced in that earlier study that we can look at whale scat and we can see that they're more stressed out when there's more marine traffic. And we know that that affects their ability to breed, their ability to communicate. We know that's affecting the species overall as a whole. 
but oh well, you know, we're back to normal again right. and life continues. So will we make any adjustments in our future life based on what we're learning from how wildlife is reacting to this very bizarre moment in time? I know you mentioned some environmental repercussions in a positive sense that we've seen earlier, particularly blue skies over India, where it would be particularly uh, polluted on a normal day. So what do we take with this information? What do we do with this information? I suppose kind of remains to be seen. But for the time being, as we continue to see more of these lockdown measures, in theory, we could continue, even if it's for this short period, to see benefits for marine life, even though things are getting harder for us as humans, will this be a better mating season for certain species of marine life? That's a possibility. And she talked about how this could affect the whale population, which is endangered. I'm sure you're familiar with that as well in the St. Lawrence River. So Transport Canada announced that all commercial marine vessels with the capacity of 12 or more passengers uh, have to stop non-essential activities. And this includes tourism and, and recreation. So this also uh, has an intended effect of reducing noise levels for marine life. And, and if these measures remain in place, for example, in June, out in the St. Lawrence, when beluga begin arriving to their summer habitat, it will probably be the quietest arrival they've had in decades. So it will, it will no doubt be a, a welcome respite for females. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. All right. I look forward to hearing more about what the impact of all that is. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. We know there's an awful lot of people out there looking for work. Hundreds of thousands of people have already applied for that Canada Emergency Response Benefit. There will be more on that today, of course, because today is another day where people who are, let's see, we're down now to the uh, more towards the middle of the year. So Monday was April, uh, January, February, March. Tuesday was April, May, June. Uh, today is July, August, September. If you have a birthday in those months, you can apply for the benefit. But that doesn't mean that people are just applying for the benefit. A lot of them would like to find some work. They would like to actually get out there and and earn some money. It must be really hard uh, to be just kind of sitting and waiting for the government to help you out on that. So if you're one of those people who's laid off and looking for work right now, our producer, Victor Young, put together a piece that might help. Hotels are are shutting their doors. Airlines are, are just being devastated. Our doors are closed. 22 staff are all laid off. We never thought things were going to change as, as, as quick as they did. The COVID-19 outbreak has negatively impacted almost every industry in Canada, and it's forced a lot of employers to put new hiring on hold. My name is Brendan Bernard. I'm an economist at Indeed Canada. Brendan has been tracking trends in job postings since the beginning of the outbreak. Overall, the situation is pretty tough out there. We've seen uh, the trend in Canadian job postings pull back significantly over the past few weeks. So as of this past Friday, 
the trend in job postings was down 24% compared to where we were in 2019. So which industries are still hiring? In broad areas of the economy, there are not too many areas that have seen significant increases, but more so uh, with, with, trend, with most of the trends downward, holding relatively steady uh, is an achievement of itself. So not surprisingly, we've seen demand stay relatively steady for jobs in the healthcare fields. That's both for healthcare professionals like doctors, but also for support and healthcare aid workers. Then outside of the healthcare field, there are some areas of the economy that are holding up relatively well. So, for example, uh, we're seeing jobs in tech and engineering not fall as much as the rest of the economy. Uh, jobs in protective services like security guards also holding up at least relatively well. And then, uh, as everyone's heard, um, a lot of the big grocery store chains and, uh, and delivery options like Amazon and Walmart have announced hiring uh, plans, and we see that their postings have held up in recent weeks as well. Whether it's a job in a grocery store, working for a meal delivery service, or something that allows you to work remotely, there are still options for people who need an additional source of income. If you've been laid off, help is available. The Canada Emergency Response Benefit will provide $2,000 a month for the next four months for workers who lose their income as a result of COVID-19. The province of BC also providing a monthly rent subsidy of $500, which will be paid directly to landlords. It is critical to make sure that people in British Columbia are not made homeless because of COVID-19. At a time when we are asking people to stay home to prevent the spread of this virus, we have to make sure that people can keep their homes. For 980 CKNW, I'm Victor Young. This is Mornings with Simi. So we have a long weekend coming up, and for people who are still working, it's probably a a much-needed day off. It's been pretty stressful for everybody. And even if you're at home, there's a lot you need to take off your mind, right? So what better way than to just get away for a few days or get away for a day, go for a hike or something? Well, don't. That is the message from many smaller communities around BC, particularly those that we would head to on a long weekend. Municipalities along the Sea to Sky Highway are definitely telling people to forget about it. Don't come there. Despite all the measures to encourage social distancing, there are still packed parking lots and all sorts of popular hiking trails along that route. Some areas are actually seeing what are reported to be midsummer levels of traffic. We wanted to talk more about this now with the help of Squamish Mayor Karen Elliott, who joins us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. What are and you... It was a bit ironic to follow the weather forecast. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were kind of hoping it would rain all weekend. That's You know what? I've been hearing that a lot from people. People email me and say that as well, saying, where is the rain when we need it? So do you see exactly. the weather forecast and kind of cringe? Yes, absolutely. I was really hoping it would be horrible this weekend. Ooh, so what are you bracing yourself for? Well, you know, we have been trying to get this message out our our peers across the province, you know, whether it's the Okanagan region or down around Fernie, Invermere, uh, we're really saying to people, please don't come to our towns. And um, this is not the time at all. And, and Dr. Bonnie Henry has been saying that too. She's really been asking people to seek um, 
you know, mental and physical exercise and, and take care of their health near their home, not in rural communities. We can't afford an outbreak of this virus with the resources that we have in our small communities. We talked to you a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, have things gotten at all better or what has happened since then? Well, it's, um, we still have several hotspots and we were grateful when the province closed the provincial parks. Um, but we're still seeing people congregate at some of our um, popular trailheads, whether it's to mountain bike or snowmobile or um, hike. Um, and people are camping in rural areas. Um, some not even in designated campgrounds. So it's creating a lot of anxiety in small communities when people do this. Um, I don't think people realize necessarily that um, we don't have the resources to support a really sick population. You know, in Squamish, we have a 25-bed hospital. Um, If this virus breaks out, that's not going to be adequate here. And so our residents are really saying, can you stay away um, uh, in the short term? Because we'd all like to get back to normal. We'd all like to welcome people back here, but not right now. Now, Mary Elliot, um, is anything done? Like when you see those people that I'm sure you're getting reports of seeing all these people hiking, camping and all of that, is anything done? Like does the municipality approach them? Do you say, listen, what are you guys doing here? Is anything being done in that regard? Yeah, we have had our RCMP um, actively patrolling and they are doing education. Um, we um, are putting in plans, plans in place for this weekend locally um, within our jurisdiction, working with the RCMP and the regional district. Um, so I would say to people who are still thinking of coming up here, um, we're going to try and make your life uh, more challenging to access trailheads and some of our recreational hotspots. And there will definitely be a larger RCMP presence. Um, we're does really mean, trying to... Does that mean ticketing? Well, we don't have that enforcement ability. Um, only Vancouver has that right now. We have sought the province's help, um, but we can do things within our jurisdiction, uh, like educational um, road checks on our own streets. Um, that you know gives us, us an opportunity to encourage people to to turn back um, or to at least uh, recreate safely. Um, and so we're putting a plan together, and we hope to have the details of that finalized in the next day or so. Um, and we'll communicate that more broadly. Um, but we are we are going to try and, and um, really focus on the hotspots that remain. Okay. And so that plan then, would that involve asking people to go home? Yes, it will. So essentially making it so that if you're going to disobey, it's going to be pretty uncomfortable. It's going to be pretty uncomfortable. We're going to ask you to be making a tough choice and we'll give you all the facts that we have about why we're asking people to stay away this weekend. Um, and hey, Squamish locals aren't perfect either. We'll be talking to our own, some of our own citizens as well. I think generally most people are trying to do the right thing um, and have been really respectful of the physical distancing uh, rules that have been put in place. Um, and so I think most people will choose to stay home and stay near home this weekend. And for those that don't, we're going to make them feel a little less comfortable about the choice they're making if we can. So what response have you gotten from the provincial government? You said you would like this, you've reached out for help. What have they told you? Um, so those conversations are ongoing. We, um, we've had great support from the province in terms of um, trying to understand the scope of the issue, identifying where the hotspots are. 
Um, and so, yeah, we hope that um, they'll continue um, with sort of monitoring traffic on the highway and helping us out as we develop our plans for the weekend. So, again, those plans are all still in the work, and uh, we hope to be able to say more in the next day or so. All right, so then, Mayor Elliott, what is your message to people who were thinking about getting out of the city and maybe heading to Squamish this weekend? Ideally, we want to see empty beaches, empty trailheads, empty parking lots, uh, empty trails this weekend. Um, Please stay home and recreate close to home so that we can get back to welcoming you in the summer months um, or whenever we're able to lift these restrictions. That is our ask. Would you like to be able to ticket people on this one? Do you think that would be more persuasive? I Look, I'd, I don't know. You know, for people who haven't heard the message yet to, to stay home and really only take essential trips away from your home, I, I don't know what will work with them. I think their actions are selfish and self-serving and put others at risk. Um, and so um, I think... You know, as my colleague in, in Pemberton said, Mayor Richmond, he said, you know, to come up here is to be reckless and irresponsible. Um, and, and that's the message I'd like to get people to hear is um, please don't just think about yourself. Please think about the thousands of people in rural communities that will not be able to weather this well if, if we get sick because someone's brought the, the virus from the city. Well, we will get that message out there. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And listen, good luck this weekend. Thanks very much. Stay healthy. You too. That is Karen Elliott, the mayor of Squamish, uh, talking about this weekend, which they're approaching, as you heard, quite apprehensively. They're worried weather is good. People might want to take a drive, go for a hike. And her message is, don't. They're going to make it difficult for you. They'll have a heavier RCMP presence. They'll be telling people, essentially, we don't want you here. Turn around, go home. But it does make you wonder, would ticketing people, do you think, be more effective. We know of other jurisdictions that are ticketing people who violate, you know, physical distancing or social isolation at home. If they're violating those rules, should we be handing out tickets? This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about the next couple of weeks. You've got a lot of different kind of uh, religious holidays and events coming up that are going to be challenging for the followers of those faiths to deal with in the way that they would normally deal with. That is getting together, congregation, going to mass, going to synagogue, going to temple, whatever the case may be. So we thought we would take a moment here and have a conversation with three local faith leaders to discuss how people are looking to religion at this time to guide them through the many challenges of COVID-19 and how they are responding to that. And remember, the next few weeks, you've got Passover beginning today. You've got Easter this weekend. You've got Vasaki coming up on April 13th and Ramadan later this month around April 22nd. So, who did we pick to talk to? Well, we have a couple of very special guests with us. We have Rabbi Don, Dan Moskovitz with us, a senior rabbi of Temple Shalom. Rabbi Moskovitz, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We also have Indrajit Singh, a Sikh chaplain at UBC and KPU. Indrajit, thank you. Uh, Thank you. And Mark Clark, senior pastor at Village Church. Pastor Clark, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I'll start. I'm going to ask each of you this question in turn. I'll start with you, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz. Do you get a sense that people are turning to faith right now during these challenging times? 
Thank you. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, we uh, went to doing our services virtually via streaming on Facebook and YouTube and, and Zoom and our website when the pandemic uh, really hit its peak and we you know, stopped all large gatherings. And where normally we might have 100 people at our worship services over the weekend, we're now uh, counting in 300, 400 uh, watching our services or joining us online. Uh, our congregants have reached out to us and we've reached out to them for spiritual support, emotional support, and of course the, the necessary things that the community can provide like groceries and uh, pharmacy pickups and, and, and errands and those kinds of things that we're doing for each other. So I think that you know, as much as this isolation and social distancing is keeping us apart, it's actually pulling us together. Now, Indrajit, I know you spend a lot of time working with younger people. What, what are their questions and how are you talking to them about this? Um, yes, Sarah. Uh, basically, you know, um, people are very concerned about uh, how they're going to celebrate, how they're going to congregate. And as you all know, Saki parades in, in Surrey and Vancouver have been canceled. And maybe it's uh, time uh, for us all to sit down and reflect uh, what Saki really means. Uh, what are the principles of Saki? Um, just like uh, Rabbi said, uh, most of us have uh, gone virtual. Uh, or using platforms that are internet-based. Online meditations have increased. uh, Virtual congregations have grown. And um, interestingly, while some people think that um, our congregations have become smaller because we're unable to meet due to social and physical distancing, um, they've actually grown because uh, our, our congregations have gone international in a way. So I look at that as a, as a positive, uh, you know. Right. Now, Pastor Clark, so we're hearing that congregations have gotten bigger online. Have you found that to be the case as well? Yeah, yeah, totally. People are, uh, I mean, we, we talk about the idea of engagement is the new attendance. And so uh, where people used to kind of just count who showed up at physical locations, the reality is it's online. You have people globally that are engaging in the gospel, engaging in teaching of the Bible that we're talking about. And so we've seen, uh, we usually have probably about 6,000 people or so that attend our different sites. And we've seen uh, upward of 20, 30,000 people joining us online. So yeah, we definitely see it. And I just think it's, you know, people are asking the big questions, the big existential questions, the questions of meaning and comfort and, and so I think they're, they're searching for those answers, and uh, they're finding them. So. And Pastor Clark, how are you going to be dealing with Easter this weekend? Uh, we recorded Easter about a month ago, and so we'll be running uh, six or seven services throughout the day. And then what we try to do is not just have people watch, because having passive observers isn't really the point. We want to try to take their engagement and, and, and translate it into connection. And so we have people on a, on a prayer chat on the side. And as people watch the service, the worship, and the preaching, uh, they can then get prayer on the side and actually get connected into community groups, which is stuff that we do during the week where they jump on Zoom with 10 other people and they actually talk about Jesus, talk about the Bible, talk about faith. And so uh, we try to kind of translate just the passive observer and say, okay, why don't we get in groups? And then we organize them geographically. So there's people watching from Ottawa, Toronto, New York, whatever it is, then we try to organize those groups around that geography. That is so cool. And it's so interesting to hear that with all three of these faiths, it seems like people are more engaged. Now, Rabbi Moskovitz, what do you tell people when they come to you or they talk to you that they are worried, they're concerned, that they have anxiety about what's happening? 
Well, I think the first thing is that uh, we validate it. I think anxiety in this situation is not only normal but healthy. Uh, that's what's keeping us uh, in and uh, away from others in a, in a physical way. Um, you know, so, so one is to validate it. The other is to, to remind them that um, we will get through this. I mean, we can go back to times of the Bible if we look at, at, at biblical stories for times of pestilence and plague and to see that when the people pulled together and, uh, you know, listened to their leadership and listened to their faith and to their God, um, they came through. Uh, so I remind them of that. I remind them of the miracles of, of uh, the human capacity to find solutions to problems. Uh, I personally pray for the miracles of medicine, our doctors and our scientists and our, and our healers that are out there uh, trying to find a cure for this. And uh, we can turn our anxiety into action by doing good for others, by being extensions of God in the world. And that allows us some modicum of control over what seems to be a completely uncontrollable uh, situation and gives us purpose. Viktor Frankl taught that if you can find meaning in something, you can endure anything. And uh, to find meaning in this is to be an extension of God, an extension of those healers in the world, uh, to try to bring healing uh, in our communities. We're talking about the role of religion in these challenging times and how more people are turning to faith to kind of ease their anxiety, which is totally to be expected. And that's they're certainly being borne out by all the different religions out there. We've got three guests with us this morning. Rabbi Dan Moskovitz, Senior Rabbi of Temple Shalom. We've got Inderjeet Singh, Sikh Chaplain at UBC and KPU, and Mark Clark, Senior Pastor at Village Church. Um, Inderjeet, I'd like to start with you this time and just ask, you know, such a huge part of the Sikh religion is to serve people, to help people. How is that working during this time? Um, yeah, in fact... Um a lot of our youth uh, students from UBC and KPU are very much involved with um, agencies like Casa Aid and Guru Nanak's Free Kitchen, Sikh Awareness Foundations, and they're working in conjunction with all the Gadoras in the Lower Mainland uh, to serve those in need by providing um, cooked food, hot meals, um, which all you have to do is call a hot hotline, and they will send you a hot meal to your homes three times a day. And uh, this is uh, all done by volunteers. Uh, and, you know, this is a global pandemic. It requires a global response. So all of us can get together and put our hands together and, you know, and our minds together and collectively and creatively come up with solutions. In fact, even the Sikh Nation uh, is always uh, not just serving food. We are also one of the largest blood donors in the Lower Mainland. And uh, this year, the Sikh Nation has moved their blood donation drive from November to the current situation because people are actually cancelling um, online appointments um, donate blood and there is a shortage of uh, donors so they've actually moved that so it's time for us to be productive. I heard that actually I heard um, the government um, saying thank you to the Sikh Nation for doing that. How is how are temples, how are Gurdwaras then using tech, are they also using technology to talk to their congregation? In fact, um, yes, they have actually moved um, on a lot of platforms. In fact, I work uh, closely with uh, the Kodora at Sagar, which is in the West, and uh, we are actually having a, we usually have a camp during spring break, and that camp is actually going on. Uh, we have not canceled, and it's going to be a camp on Zoom, and we're expecting to have 100 kids still sign up. Uh, and do this. So we are in the midst of planning, in the midst of designing online platform programs, games, activities, slideshows. And the wonderful thing about this camp this time is that we are able to tap 
on the resources of folks uh, from who are not in the lower mainland so we can get video links and you know live shows from folks uh, in other parts of um, the country and the world Pastor Clark, what do you say to the younger people in your congregation as well who may be seeing this and they're obviously their anxiety levels must be rising as well. The world is changing right in front of them. Yeah, and you know, some of them are uh, still single and <laughs> looking for that to change. Uh, and so it's hard to actually have those connections. Um, what we've been talking about and what, what we've seen a great response to is, uh, you know, the words of Jesus in John 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And there's this sense of like, okay, maybe your life has been kind of revolving around the wrong kinds of things. Maybe your your life has been revolving and going after money or being successful or that relationship or whatever. And you can't find ultimate meaning in those things. And so uh, when Jesus says, look, believe in me, rather than looking to the world, if you look to the things of the world, it's going to create an anxiety because you've just had them stripped away. If you trust the money and relationships and whatever, all of those things go away, but Jesus doesn't. And so the, even in the midst of kind of building up to Easter, it's, it's kind of this image where there was suffering for a time, but then at the other side of it, he rose from the dead. And so have hope, uh, you know, tomorrow the sun will rise one day at a time, you know, don't borrow trouble from tomorrow. That's what Jesus talked about. So we're trying to kind of give that message uh, right. even to those who are young to have a longer perspective. This is a long game. Life's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And, uh, and look to Jesus because he's going to, you know, he's the hope that transcends all of them. Um, Rabbi Moskowitz, let me ask you this as well. And I'm going to ask each of you this, if you could very quickly just talk about the need, do you think, for different faiths to work together right now as well? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important, and I resonate with the pastor's, uh, the, you know, the core of the pastor's message uh, as well, in that um, we, you know, we're all dealing with this very much the same way. If there's been one unifying message of this pandemic, it's that we are so much more alike. We are so much more connected than our, than our cultures, our religions, our languages would lead us to believe as, as we are different. Uh, we actually began this uh, process uh, of working together uh, with the city very early on in the social distancing we were uh, leading a multi-faith session with the city on climate change and that was supposed to be 300 people at our synagogue from across faiths and we moved it online three four weeks ago now uh, because this is this is how we come together now uh, in this uh, in this situation and those were multi-faith leaders all coming together so I think it's given us great platforms and opportunities mm-hmm. to share similar messages uh, Andrew G could I get you to reflect on that as well, the need for all faiths to come together? Yes, you know, um, humanity has always faced adversity. Interestingly, um, before the Holy Week, uh, look at Passover, look at Good Friday and Easter, even Vesaki, um, but this has always brought communities together and they have become major and significant celebrations within each community. You know, uh, we should always live in gratitude. Um, there's so much to be thankful for, for our health, our families, good governance, as, as the rabbi said, um, we are actually very much more alike. Our planet um, is healing. Our ecosystem is healing, and that's a wonderful thing. You know, God is always our crutch, is our support system. Uh, we can learn and adapt and recover under this adversity, even pa- this whole farce. Pastor Clark? Yeah, I think that uh, you got to, you know, one of the kind of biblical themes is the idea of working for the good of the city and working for the good of where you live. And I think that, you know, uh, our church's vision has always been not to build a great church, but to build a great city as well. 
and uh, and it's never been about coming to buildings. It's never been about you know just gathering all together. It's about scattering and actually being the people of God in the world for the good of the world. Uh, and so I think that all of that necessitates people to actually work together and go, okay, um, how do we actually bless people? Because they're not going to be able to get spiritually healthy unless some of these basic needs are met, uh, like food and shelter and those kind of things. So, Good time for everybody to heed that message. Thanks to all three of you for being here with us this morning. Thank you. We appreciate your time and best of luck to all of you in the next few weeks dealing with your congregations. That's Rabbi Dan Moskowitz, that's Inderjeet Singh and Mark Clark, uh, senior pastor at Village Church.